Hi, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to Episode 77 of the Deep South Dharma Podcast, being released Sunday, September 6, 2020. The topic is Concentration on the Noble Eightfold Path. Two quick reminders. One is that this upcoming Friday, September 11th, 2020, is the deadline to register to take part in my online retreat happening, being hosted uh, by Heartwood Refuge. So if you want to register for that, do that now at heartwoodrefuge.org. And then I want to just uh, mention that on our Saturday morning Deep South Dharma live uh, Zoom group meetings, that we're in the midst of a series right now on stream entry. And uh, Jaya, Judy Seeley, has given some wonderful um, instruction for us in, in that series. And I want to invite you to be part of the live, uh, to be part of that discussion. I will also continue to put up the recordings of her talks on our Facebook page. So you can also look for us there, facebook.com slash deepsouthdharma. And now we'll settle into concentration on the Noble Eightfold Path. To have a sense of what right concentration or wise concentration refers to on the Eightfold Path, we first may need to sort of bookmark or dispense, if we can, with the image of someone over-efforting, sort of with the forehead wrinkled up, trying to force ourselves to stay with something. Um a very useful uh, a very useful image that i heard one time on retreat was instead of thinking of an upside down bowl and concentration being a matter of trying to balance a ball bearing on top of that upside down bowl instead think in terms of turning the bowl right side up placing the ball bearing in that bowl and letting it come to rest The reasons for developing concentration are numerous. I'll just mention some of them here. First of all, it's helpful to understand concentration as a more secure happiness and pleasure than what we refer to as worldly pleasures. So concentration is something that even though in a in, in one sitting, you may have moments where your concentration slides off and you have to reestablish it, over time in practice, um, that ability to enter into concentration becomes more stable and becomes a more secure um, basis for happiness and pleasure, which can give us a great deal of confidence in 
um, in our lives in general, knowing that we have this established well of a sense of happiness. Concentration is a means to engage and ripen this receptive type of action that sort of collects joy in this way over time. So, you know, there's the, we think of action as do it, do it, do it, go, go, go. Um, there's that sense of even physically sometimes leaning forward, straining. And with concentration, we are deliberately setting that down, allowing that active striving aspect of the mind to quieten, to settle. And, but what's left in that is not, is not nothing. It's not, we're letting that, that active part settle so that the more receptive aspects of the mind um, get, get some exercise, so to speak, and become stronger. It is a result of regular practice. Um, at first, consistency of practice, of meditation practice to help establish the habit is more important than length of time. So if you are new to meditation practice, it is it can be very valuable to just begin with the intention of sitting for five or 10 minutes a day. If, if that's what it takes, to get in the habit of practicing every day, to just sort of have that in mind of, hey, if I don't do more than five minutes a day, that's fine, at least I'm doing something. So this allows us to get in some habits of choosing, um, finding those times of day that are good for practice, um, having a situation um, uh, logistically and physically that's good for practice, um, identifying spaces where um, you're not too cluttered, either physically or mentally, where you are less prone to interruption for a time. So all of that, even just beginning with five or 10 minutes a day, gives you a chance to learn some things to help you fine tune a practice. But to enjoy the benefits of concentration will require giving yourself longer stretches of time. So in the beginning, five or 10 or even 20 minutes a day, um, at 20 minutes a day, you get you start to get past that initial settling period so that, you know, it takes between 10 or 15 minutes for, for just all of the flakes of the snow globe to settle, so to speak. So if you have this sense of the mind as this snow globe that's been shaken up and you sit down to practice, if you practice for 20 minutes, it can allow you a sense of things settling enough to enjoy, uh, to enjoy the beginnings of, uh, of that wholesome pleasure, to enjoy some space and quiet. But to really start building the benefits of concentration, you're going to want to give yourself longer stretches of time, 30 or 40 minutes, 45, or, or for some people, maybe even an hour or so, if that's doable for you. We hear um, in teachings that the purpose of concentration on the Eightfold Path is not only to enjoy it, though. Um, it is also because it allows us insight into reality. And so I want to back up for a minute. You know, part of the story that the Buddha shared um, in describing his path of awakening was his disappointment 
with relying on concentration practices alone. Um, you know, he, he studied with people who were the sort of the preeminent teachers of his day um, and, and learned how to attain these really refined states of concentration and that kind of um, bliss that was, you know, momentarily refreshing to the mind. But he found that, that it wasn't lasting. It wasn't building that sort of stable sense of well-being that he was looking for. It wasn't helping him. Concentration alone wasn't helping him solve the problem of suffering. But then when he had his experience, you know, the story is that at the Bodhi tree, he sort of settled into practice for however long it took to, to sort of integrate all this, make sense of this, to solve this puzzle of su suffering, then his concentration practice, he was able to use that to good effect as he got hit with these waves of sort of uh, painful conditioning um, that the mind uh, brings forward. Conditioning having to do with um, craving, lust, desire, conditioning having having to do with aggression, anger, you know, sort of warlike feelings. And then those um, those sort of um, diluted, uh, also painful conditionings that essentially boil down to who do you think you are? Right. And so he that is is his life and his experience with that then becomes this uh, sort of template for helping us recognize concentration isn't only for the bliss, but allows us to see through the conditioning that sometimes assaults us, even when, even when we think the mind is peaceful and, uh, oh, I'm just going to sit here and have a nice sit. And then something bubbles up. It's, if we don't have some concentration and awareness to see through that, we'll get carried away with this very painful conditioning. So to benefit in this way requires the choice to stay with what arises and not give up practice. Not stay with it in the sense of fusing with it, becoming identified with it, um, or believing it even, but staying with it in terms of knowing it's there and not running away, not getting up from practice not finding excuses not to practice. Um, as the body relaxes into concentration mode and sort of out of survival mode, sometimes these things come up that that just can't come up when we're in survival mode. Um, I mean, that by definition is survival mode. Um, and, and there are many people who speak very eloquently. Um, there's a, lots and lots of resource out there on the on the internet and elsewhere um, about what survival mode is for us physiologically and brain-wise, but just very oversimplified right now, what I'll just say is by definition, survival mode is that which sort of shuts down our attention to anything else other than putting one foot in front of the other. Now, as we settle into concentration practice and awareness broaden and, and it's no broadens and it's no longer about just putting one foot in front of the other, 
then things that have been shoved aside are going to come forward for our attention. And that's not always pleasant. In fact, sometimes it's very, very difficult. On the surface, that can look like unresolved issues that the thinking mind keeps trying to solve, to solve through thinking. Um, it can, and, and, and the response there is just to keep practicing, right? We stay with the body, whatever your meditation object is, not with an idea that thinking is wrong, but just that you say that, okay, I recognize this thinking's happening and that buying into these thoughts hasn't solved the problem yet, <laughs> hasn't, um, so let me, let me not think that I'm going to solve this by thinking it over and over again. So again, going back to the story of the Buddha, he didn't sit there arguing with himself about the dancing girls, right, that came forward in his mind. He didn't argue with himself about the, the sort of warriors that showed up in the mind. He saw that, oh, this, this is just, this is Mara, right? Sort of the name given to these sort of negative forces of the mind. That's all it is. He didn't have to buy into it any more than that. So sometimes just in doing that, we find that, that maybe the next time we sit and that issue comes up later, or maybe, you know, maybe there, it is something that we have to deal with later in the day. Just in doing that, we have an unexpected shift, a new way of seeing it, or somehow it just feels more settled, right? That thing that felt like, that felt that we were so identified with, that felt like my problem. All of a sudden, it's just sort of nothing but a thing. It, it just, it, it isn't, it isn't me or mine, isn't anything that I have to really get terribly involved in. Um the Buddha taught that feelings are self-releasing. And part of what that means to me is that we don't think our way through them, um, but we do let them move through us. So this is true even of not even just day-to-day -day problems, but of unresolved traumas that the body keeps trying to process to resolution, right? It can feel like a hindrance to our practice. But the real hindrances are the craving we have of having, we want a different experience. We want to be able to sit down and meditate and have it be all nice. We don't necessarily want to feel something difficult. Um, and so we're craving for a different experience or on the flip side, we're having aversion to what we're feeling in the body and heart. Um, and, and then we start getting caught up in the story about how these bodily experiences were conditioned. And before we know it, we are re-traumatizing ourselves, replaying those stories. Instead of being with the experience of the body with a kind awareness and an intention to sort of something that can be helpful sometimes is to imagine that you're not removing your focus from what you're doing, you're allowing your concentration object, whether that is a phrase you're chanting or a visualization you're using or a very refined attention to the breath, that can still be there. And then you might imagine as if sort of a tired, troubled child were to crawl up into your lap, right? And you, you wouldn't have to break concentration 
to provide a sense of care and presence to to that that little one. And very often, that's what we're dealing with in one way or another. If we find uh, experiences coming forward for us that we are experiencing as hindrances or interruptions, sometimes rather than pushing them away, what can be helpful is to imagine just bringing that young one up on the lap, soothing it to sleep as you continue to to stay focused. And when that when that child, just to stick with this metaphor for a minute, when that child has been settled and calm and reassured, then climbs down from your lap and goes to play elsewhere. Now, it's also helpful to know that the system generally will not give us more than we can handle if we are willing to, to surrender to wisdom and compassion. And so what I mean by that is, you know, there may be things that come up when we're sitting in a group that don't come up when we're sitting alone. And we don't need to go digging for those things when we are alone. Um, there are some things that come up when we're sitting with a skillful teacher or mentor that don't come up when we are sitting with a group or when we're sitting alone, right? That healing aspect of Dhamma that is deeper than the thinking mind, deeper than our ideas of what we can or what we think we should be able to handle, that, that, that thing, Dhamma in the sense of thing, that thing in us that knows what we need even when we don't know what we need. Um, if we are willing to develop some trust in that process, we then won't be pushing ourselves into areas where we're really not ready to go yet, where we haven't built up the, the practice to go yet. And so as long as you can stay out of the egoic ideas of what you should be able to handle, you can develop some trust in your own process as a result of regular concentration practice. Um, instead of stiffening up and going back into survival mode, you can allow the system to do what it needs to do. And you can know when it's like, okay, this is a difficult wave of feeling, but there's that, there's almost that sense of guidance you get like, you know, just hang in there. You can handle that. And then there's other times when there's a very strong feeling of don't go there alone. And we need to respect that. That is why we have Sangha. That is why we have the support of teachers and other mentors. So instead of going into survival mode or forcing ourselves into something where we become, where survival mode just takes over because we're pushing ourselves too far, we can allow the system to do what it needs to do to allow those feelings to release themselves with your kind attention. Sometimes you'll know exactly what it's about when you have these waves of feeling, waves of processing. Sometimes you'll know exactly what those are about, and or you'll think you do. Other times you won't know what it's about. It's just something old that sort of needs to unravel and move through. And you're not going to get it all done in one sit, but you'll get a wave of it done. And... Um, and when that happens, it's important to allow yourself to remain relaxed and enjoy the peace that comes after that wave. It may just be a sense of relief, a deeper compassion, or maybe a whole new way of seeing a situation. 
But when you get through a tough wave, allow yourself to um, relax and enjoy what comes after that, because that's going to also make it easier for you when it's time to sit down to practice again. There's you'll find that there's more willingness there to do that. So when we hear about concentration allowing us to penetrate reality, you know, by penetrating reality, we're not talking about some sort of unfeeling visual experience of, you know, seeing all the molecules floating around or something. Um, sometimes it may be penetrating reality, maybe um, making it through another batch of grief that you didn't know was there. It may not seem all that exciting, right? It may feel sometimes kind of repetitive, just like uh, having to do the laundry over and over when we're dealing with these waves of grief, uh, waves of the same old cravings, waves of the same old judgmentalness, whatever it is. Um, but allowing yourself to relax into that joy when you get a batch done, not running away from the work that may arise, but also not running away um, and missing out on the sense of accomplishment and the sense of, oh yeah, look at that. I made it through that. Um, that sense of confidence, hanging around to enjoy the benefit of that really builds that confidence. Now, other times the receptive function of relaxation does allow us to just enjoy waves of bliss. There's no waves that are challenging or whatever, but these also need to be understood as just waves. Um, they, they, aren't, they aren't proof of what fabulous meditators we are. They aren't proof of, they're not anything to become identified with. Um, they need to be understood as waves. And the point is not to chase them or to try to hang, you know, hang on to them or anything like that, but to be aware of what that feels like in the body, what that feels like in the mind and heart, and also to watch how even those feelings self-release, and then to continue just a bit longer to enjoy the relief that comes with that. Even waves of bliss, there is a sense of relief when they pass. We don't often hear about relief coming after a wave of bliss. Um, now, in the in the formulation of the seven factors of awakening, that is indicated when we talk about um, we talk about a stage of tranquility following uh, following piti p i t i joy um, joy or blissful joy. Um, but part of what we see through regular practice is that there is a deeper happiness, a more secure happiness that comes in the spaces between the waves whether we're dealing with waves of grief or waves of bliss. And a big part of that more secure happiness that we're seeking is that sense of confidence that develops in going through the waves and seeing how that process works and that you can do it. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.